today we're talking to Dan Gillis, Director of Technology for Chevron Lumos Global. Uh, nice to meet you, Dan. Very, very nice to meet you. It's a pleasure to talk to you today because you're an international expert in um, both heavy oil processes and uh, applications, and you have more than 35 years of experience in this sphere. And right. what is more, you're working for one of the leaders on the market nowadays. Let's talk about management because you as a top management manager achieved a lot within your company and during your career and it's quite interesting to understand uh, how you manage to control all the people who work with you. Yeah, I see my role more of an influencer and a promoter supporter of finding solutions because I've always had this belief and I've seen it in the past that there's unique solutions for every project and you have to find it. And that's our role as a technology licensor, is to help the customer find that unique solution for them that makes their project success. So that's been my influence and others, and I would say it comes the same way. We have a fantastic atmosphere at our company, and it's a, it's a unique company in that sense. It's not large, like a, a Chevron or, or a McDermott, that are two owners companies, but the people there tremendous experience, interest, and I'm just pleased to be part of that. Okay. That's the way I would say it. Nice to hear. And talking about motivation, do you need to motivate your team every day or like every month or how does it work? <laughs> motivation is a continuous effort, right? Mm -hmm. And you have to show respect, interest, and care with those you work with. Um, you have to see a point to where the opportunities are for our company and for individuals if you're going to motivate them. And despite motivation, is it necessary to invest in your uh, team development? Well, you know, I look back in my career, I, I've had tremendous opportunities to do different things and that's probably helped me be where I am today. And others deserve the same chance. So you can't just leave a person in one job, especially if they're talented. You don't want to leave them in one job for too long. You want to keep helping them grow. Now, having said that, some of our most technically uh, knowledgeable people aren't necessarily interested in going do, doing project management or sales, right? Uh, so you've got to uh, find areas for them to grow into taking lead positions in new technology development or applications, interactions with customers. So you have to find which path is best for each person so that they can grow to their fullest and contribute the fullest to, to the company. You told me that you started as an engineer. I guess my career path started when I was actually at in engineering school between second and third year, I got an intern position at a refinery in the city I'm from in Canada. And uh, I ended up in that summer being a process relief operator. And so I got to, uh, from the bottom, see what refinery operations was about and I really enjoyed it. In fact, I, did two, I had two interns there at that refinery. And the second one, I remember sitting in the control room and this uh, these senior management from the refinery came in with this couple of people. And this one guy I could tell was really important, technically very smart. And so he was, 
he was telling people what to do and how you should operate this FCC and this and that. And I didn't know what he was talking about then because I didn't know technologies very much except for what uh, I learned uh, from the other operators. But I, I thought that was pretty neat stuff. And so even though when I graduated from university, a high-performing student could have a choice of jobs back then, I went back to that refinery because I wanted to do that type of work. And so my career started in refinery operations, um, process engineering, uh, and then it moved into, I got an opportunity to work on a unique project converting that refinery from light crude processing to heavy crude. And that was my first introduction into residue upgrading technologies, which I then moved on to another company after working and developing that project. Uh, a major oil company in the world in Western Canada where I became an expert at a very young age on all of the residue upgrading processes available at that time in the later 1980s. Uh, after doing business development work and project development work for that company, I moved on to a technology licensing company because I thought that's what I really want to do and that's how I got into technology licensing where I spent the coming on 20 years now doing in various roles and it's just been a tremendous uh, career path and enjoyable. So it's kind of an odd start. But I'll tell you one thing, uh, when I joined that first company in technology licensing after a few years, I remember going to a refinery and we ended up in a control room and I was talking to people and I thought to myself, I've come back full circle because you know, probably 15 years ago, I said this, 16 years ago, this is what I wanted to do. And I found myself one day, I'm doing what I thought was so impressive to do. I was now the expert coming in, helping a refinery. What do you consider um, the most, uh, so to say, contribution to the development of the industry from your side? I've been fortunate to work on two or three significant projects that have become commercialized. And that's before I, I got into technology licensing. And I've been part of identifying new uh, flow schemes and technologies that have been commercialized. And I can point to three or four of them without being specific. Um, that when I look at that project or I look at uh, this technology that many companies are using now, it just feels good inside that you've, you've added value. Mm -hmm. Okay, and what advice can you give to um, those guys who are just at the beginning of the way? Find something to work on that you think is important, not just to your company, but to society, and go do it well, and hopefully see it succeed. And with that, you will succeed, and your career path will find the, right, the best path for you. Okay, that's a good advice. So what is your opinion? Which technologies are key trends today? Well, if you look what's happening in the refining industry today, we're seeing some of the biggest changes we've ever seen. Uh, one of the biggest changes is going to be the change in uh, sulfur regulations and bunker fuels, IMO 2020, where the sulfur specification for fuel oil is going to go down from 35 to 0.5% sulfur. This is a huge change and is shocking the refining industry. Um, so the technologies we're going to see that are going to have to respond to that need are processes such as residue hydrotreating, short name RDS we use at our company, uh, residue hydrocracking, and to a certain extent delayed coking.
-hmm. Now with these technologies will come along uh, processes that will further process the residue upgrading technologies products such as hydrocracking and RFCC. Uh, we're also seeing um, uh, higher demand for petrochemical processes and technologies that uh, overlap refining and petrochemicals. What are your plans for the future? What technologies are you going to uh, offer market? We've been, got new catalysts and processes associated with crude to chemicals coming out. Uh, we have a very advanced form of residue hydrocracking full conversion to, to high quality products called LC Slurry that actually it's already been uh, licensed in projects in engineering procurement construction phase for, for a Swedish refiner. That will, will be out there soon. Coming back to IMO 2020, what kind of technologies you are currently developing for this? Yes, uh, well one of them we, we brought to the marketplace, in fact commercialized already, is called LC LSFO. Now, this is uh, a version of, uh, of residue hydrocracking that combines our LC finding, residue hydrocracking process, and RDS, residue hydrotreating. Normally, with residue hydrocracking, you want to maximize the uh, conversion and produce, maximize production of transportation fuels like diesel, gasoline. But with this new regulation coming in, uh, product like uh, ultra-low sulfur fuel oil, the price is expected to get close to that of transportation fuels. So a process like LC-LSFO, which can do both, will be highly attractive in that it doesn't produce any low-value products per se. About uh, your agreement that you signed with Saudi Aramco in uh -huh. uh, 2018 yes. uh, for um, joint development of uh, heavy oil processes and um, as far as I remember on your website you stated that uh, this will give a lot of opportunities for them so what kind of opportunities we are talking about right well the joint development agreement we signed with Saudi Aramco is to develop a new process to convert crude to petrochemicals. And uh, this is re requiring extensive uh, research uh, by both parties to, to bring this technology along. So far, the results are very promising, where we are seeing potential for over 70% petrochemical mm -hmm. production from crude oil, which is far beyond any of the competitive, competitive options. Wow, that's impressive about your last year project with Ngison Refinery and Petrochemical. Was it difficult to start working with them? Did you take part in the elaboration? This is a major expansion at that refinery where they're going to, they're going to be processing high, uh, higher, medium, higher sulfur crude oils from the Middle East. In order to do so, they need to have conversion of the bottom half of the refinery. What we're supplying is the residue hydrocracking technology to it and its form of residue hydrocracking called LC-MAX, which can obtain and will obtain over 93% conversion uh, of residues. And this will allow HPCL to have a very competitive not one of the most competitive refineries in the world once this process is installed and they come up in full production. This is a very impressive uh, numbers that you are announcing and are there any competitors who can uh, provide them with the same? 
we, we, we were selected amongst uh, three uh, con contenders for, for this tech, uh, project. Uh, all of them have their own versions of high conversion. But the advantage this LC Max technology has is very unique in that it, it obtains high conversion using proven processes in a unique, elegant flow scheme. And uh, yes, there has been tremendous research by others to develop high conversion technologies, but very limited commercialization of these concepts. So it was not that difficult to win for you? It was very difficult for us to win, believe me. It, it, it is always difficult to win uh, a license award. And that's because, if, look, look what's happening. Customers are spending on these big projects. It's not like they're spending $100 million. These are two, sometimes three plus billion dollar projects. Uh, and maybe 25% of the cost of that is this major residue conversion process. So when you're spending that sort of money, you are obliged as an owner to do a rigorous evaluation and, and you have strong demands from those offering the technologies to, to fully explain and prove that their claims are valid and will work. In fact, the banks will not provide financing for these types of projects uh, if they don't have some commercial basis to them. Talking about your hobbies, oh. surprisingly, I found out that uh, you're a fan of York landscaping and also house remodeling. Mm -hmm. And in my mind, it's something huge to do. So how oh. do you find time for this? Well, well, first of all, you know, the culture I come from, Western Canada, it was quite common for us uh, to be involved in doing things ourselves. It's the culture we come from. Uh, a smaller uh, community, per se, in the world scale, but with opportunities to do it. In fact, uh, I remember one of the refinery operators saying to other operators, you know, they would all end up building their own houses or subcontracting some things. They had a lot of time. They worked so many days, so many days off, and it was part of the culture there. And, and so I learned from a fr good friend of mine, probably my best friend in high school, how to do things like that, work with my hands, and I enjoyed it because of the mental demands in a job, doing something physical, and that added value was good. But if you look at my hobbies, uh, interested in, in yard landscaping, house remodeling, and, and projects around that, they're similar to what I've done in my career. They take uh, planning, uh, they take uh, focus, and you have to have a vision of where you want to get to. And uh, with that, that's the same in, in the type of work I do and anyone who's successful in any role they have. And so to me, these hobbies are, are a natural part of who I am, just like the type of work I think I do is a natural part of who I am. And it's been very enjoyable. Do you have free time with your multitasking? <laughs> the type of company I work for and the type of role I have, it's not a eight to five, five days a week job. Right? because customers' demands are whenever they are, and sometimes it takes a lot of effort for a long period of time, but there's also opportunities, especially when you travel the world to meet customers, to have, like I'll have today, to visit this beautiful city, uh, a couple hours free. So I take advantage when I can of this limited free time I have to, to enjoy.
you have a lot of projects in process and you're planning to have more in the future, I guess. And one of I, I've heard about is the projects by the end of 2019 in China, where uh, your ISOD vaccine technology is implemented, am I right? Mm -hmm. So can you tell more about these projects? Sure, sure, certainly. Um, well, first of all, we, we've we've actually uh, licensed, sold many isoduaxing projects in China. Uh, but just t talking on the side a bit, uh, the Chinese market is very interesting. I would say in some ways they, they can be challenging, but, but in some ways it's very enjoyable working with them too. The Chinese refiners are very interested in, get, in obtaining the latest and most advanced technologies for their, um, their projects. But we also see is that Chinese refiners are less risk adverse to new ideas and technologies than other parts of the world. They're more flexible because we're always trying to bring the best and uh, latest to the market, which can be difficult to do. Uh, we, now on ISO dewaxing, we have actually licensed many ISO dewaxing units in China. And um, the reason for that is if you look at the Chinese market, it's a growing economy, as most of us understand. So there's a higher, there's a greater need for lubricating oils for the transportation industries, uh, etc. And uh, additionally, there's with the higher quality vehicles, the type of lubricating oils have to be better. And what ISO dewaxing does it produces group three lube oils, which is the highest standard quality lube oils uh, used today. And parallel to this, the Chinese, ref uh, Chinese uh, customers are phasing out the old solvent-based group one lube oil. So this is high demand for this group three lube oils, thus the strong interest in this very uh, high quality uh, lube oil manufacturing technology, isolde waxing, which maximizes yields of group three lube oils. Mm -hmm. And anyways, despite all the advantages working with Chinese market, many companies say that it's quite difficult to start working with them because uh, it's a kind of closed market who is very um, selective for um, companies whom they're gonna work with. That depends on what you have to offer and what their needs are. The Chinese refining community is actually very strong and, and technically advanced in many, many areas. But there are areas where they desire to obtain uh, the latest technologies from companies like ourselves. And in those situations, uh, we've been very successful. And fortunately, the technologies they want are the ones that we market, which mm -hmm. is why we're very active in China and have been very successful for many years there. Mm -hmm. Okay, good to hear. And uh, what can you advise to other companies, for example, to start working with China? What should they think about, first of all? You have to recognize that the Chinese uh, expectations and ability to purchase outside of China are different than maybe, let's say, uh, well, we're in Hungary right here, a refinery in Hungary purchasing technology from the United States, from our company like ourselves. Uh, they have restrictions. They can't, per, uh, they have uh, rules where they try and minimize cash flow going outside of China. So you can't necessarily sell 
all of the features and products that come with a, your specific technology, you have to select what is uh, the most important to them, offer that, and offer it in a cost-effective way because the Chinese are very strong negotiators when it comes to um, pricing. Yeah, I can imagine that. And how can you make a cost-effective solution while it's so expensive itself? You, you just told me about billions of dollars, so. Yeah, well, certainly we, a company like ours doesn't get that sort of uh, money for our technology. It's a very small mar part of the, the entire price of our project. So you have to sometimes be selective on how much engineering you do uh, to support the, this technology transfer and know-how. Maybe it's a smaller package. Sometimes uh, they like to at times uh, use uh, existing designs to minimize costs. And uh, the equipment that you supply, that you normally uh, sell to uh, say an established Western customer, maybe you, you can't offer that and they can't obtain as high efficiency, but still have outstanding te uh, technology basis uh, for, for applying to their project. Talking about your uh, current project with Hindustan, Hindustan Petroleum Corporation that uh, you've signed, if I'm not mistaken, a year ago. So what can you tell about this? The HPCL project is, is one of those I mentioned earlier where uh, they want to process lower cost crude oils like Middle East sour crudes, and, but produce high quality products for their growing transportation. Uh, market and, and and we enable this with our technology like LC Max, but there's been other uh, projects in the, many other projects in Asia that have also been able to use our technologies. Um, we we've sold many uh, of our RDS technologies for converting atmospheric residue, uh, preparing atmospheric residue for RFCC processes to maximize production of gasoline and propylene for those sorts of markets. And that's uh, helped those customers have very cost-effective, attractive solutions. And as for Russian, for me, it was very interesting to know that you have uh, projects in Russia as well, uh -huh. specifically with Taneco. And mm -hmm. as far as I remember, you start working with them in 2006 uh, mm -hmm. and you're still continuing. Mm -hmm. So what can you say about working on Russian markets? Well, the Russian market has been also very important to us. We, we've sold many hydrocracking uh, processes Lube, lube technologies and petrochemical processes into the Russian market. So it's been very important to CLG and we have many friends and uh, associations in the Russian market that, that we're proud to have. The Teneco one is an example where we have agreement to uh, continue looking for applications of our technologies and we continue to do so. Uh, and it's been a wide range of technologies we've been able to bring into the Russian market to meet their needs, which maybe are a little bit different than maybe Asia, uh, but fortunately we've had uh, technologies and solutions that they've acquired. So we've uh, really been uh, proud to, to be partners with these Russian companies and look forward to continued close uh, alliances in the future. We've been talking about sports before, and you've mentioned that you're a fan of hockey. Yes. So can you tell more? Do you play yourself now? 
technically, I still play at my age, but only once or twice a year, so I claim I can. I played hockey all my life. And, well, I, see, I grew up in Western Canada in the Prairie Provinces, where that was our culture, ice hockey in the winter, the long winters we play hockey. In fact, a lot of people don't know that, but when, you know, the baby carriages where I'm from, they're usually six inches longer, and that's because we, our mothers would put our skates on when we're sleeping so we could start skating when we get up. No, sorry, that's not quite <laughs> true, but that's, it's almost the truth because I think I've had skates on since I was two and a half years of age. Wow. So, yeah, yeah, and, and in fact, my backyard, my father so had an ice rink. about Canadians are working. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, we, we, uh, it's part of the culture, at least it was then, and you played at noon hour, you played recess and 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 the weekends you would play hockey and, and just like other parts of the world some kids play soccer or, or mm -hmm. football most parts of the world call you know and but it was our culture and and i continued to play it in a recreation way which you have opportunities where i've always lived and i played other sports like tennis too more tennis now than hockey mm -hmm. as i got I've aged so it's been good so were you good in hockey yeah pretty, it's okay it's okay <laughs> I wasn't um, uh, an elite hockey player, but I could skate pretty fast, and especially for when I got into my middle age, the 30s and 40s, I was as fast as a lot of these guys who became elite players and just enjoyed the game tremendously. And have you ever dreamed of being a professional hockey player? Of course, I'll, I still dream of it, <laughs> still dream of it, but it, ain't, it wasn't gonna happen then and it's not gonna happen now. But uh, of course, I want, you, you have to dream. You're going to attend one of our uh, congresses, which is Petrochemical and Refining Congress. Yes. Uh, so how often do you go to such kind of events? Well, as a company, we, we, we uh, attend several of them. I probably do upwards of half a dozen a year. They're very important for us to go to, though. Um, we want to hear what our customers are thinking, the customers that come there and interact with them. Plus, we, we get an opportunity to talk with other types of companies. Um, for example, a lot of times there will be uh, market analysts there. Uh, there will be equipment suppliers who have latest equipment which is related to our process. So these types of events, like the one starting tomorrow, are very important to us to be, participate at and interact with various companies, individuals, look for opportunities for obviously technology sales and ways that we could improve our technologies and focus our technologies and where the markets are going from like the, the companies that really study the marketplace and, and identify what products are in specific parts of the world are demanded. So very important for us mm -hmm. to be here. Okay, and talking about not only um, the end users and customers, are you looking at subcontractors as well within these kind of events? We don't see uh, the concept of subcontracting like the engineering companies do to do EPC as much as we do. There's times... For example, technology producers or yeah. equipment manufacturers. Well, we, we do have um, alliances with some companies that have technologies that we don't offer. And so, because some customers want uh, a technology company or group of companies to supply all of the technologies to support their project. And so we have two or three uh, companies that we have alliances with. Sometimes we see them at these events and we talk to them. Um, but certainly uh, 
uh, process like we have, equipment is a very important part. And we don't typically develop equipment, uh, even things like valves or, or pumps. They're, in these processes, they're very high technology. They're high technology in themselves. So the more we can uh, meet those people and we get a chance to talk with them at length at these uh, events helps a lot in understanding what's, what's the right products to include in our technology offering or to recommend to a customer so that the, their project is successful and reliable. Mm -hmm. And for example, if I'm the uh, equipment manufacturer and I want to start working with your company, mm -hmm. do you have any chance or for you to say like, okay, let's continue neg negotiations after the Congress? Of course, of course, certainly. We, we always, uh, if you meet someone who has a unique uh, piece of equipment that you're not aware of at, at an event like this, you, there'll be follow-up meetings and, and there'll be a lot of discussions, if, especially if we're interested. If we're not interested, there won't be very much discussions. <laughs> but it, assuming they have something unique and beneficial, we'll have a lot of discussions with them. And we'll probably, when we treat them, actually, we treat them like customers treat us. We put them through a rigorous examination of why this product would, uh, or piece of equipment, for example, would be beneficial for the process and, and the customer. And once we've uh, verified and are comfortable that it is, we can support that piece of equipment or recommend it as, a, as an option for the customer for, for, their, for this process. So I should be very well prepared before coming to you at the Congress with all the documentation or how should I be prepared? Well, it, it's usually we're aware of equipment, but sometimes they'll bring it and, and then you can, this is an opportunity to have a discussion on this specific item in more detail, or they, they may be doing things you weren't aware of. And that's quite common. This is in related to um, one of our other technologies, coking. And we're, along with our coking expert, talking with this company, we knew they had something related to the decoking process, but we weren't aware of their commercial experience. And, and they were telling us, yeah, we've, we've, we've applied it here, here, at this refinery. And so now we're much more comfortable. If, for example, I created uh, a new technology and I do not have experience yet, so uh, there is a kind of chicken and egg problem because mm -hmm. I do not have experience yet, but I can't get it because mm -hmm. nobody wants to talk mm -hmm. to me when mm -hmm. I do not have a portfolio. Mm -hmm. So what should I do in this case? How do you think? We started this conversation. I've been around a long time and I've seen a lot of processes come and people think they've got the, the greatest solution is it's revolutionary, it's gonna change the way processing is. Rarely does that occur. I wish <laughs> it could because that'd be great for, for our customers, but it doesn't. Um, so how, how could we know? <laughs> well, but, but uh, there, there are some processes that do look promising and they can be tested what they have to do is get their technology into a commercial or semi-commercial uh, environment so they can really see if it does, does work. If they have that, uh, sometimes there's processes that are, uh, that are joined to our main technology that are a little bit different than the ones we're using and they look very promising. So we're looking at ways to work with some of these types of organizations and company like us will listen to them because we're very interested in, in increasing the performance of our 
offerings, our technology offerings, and, and many times someone working on something that could be a small part but an important part of what we're doing can really make the difference in our, in our technology being selected. Talking about low carbon future, mm -hmm. which is a key trend on the market nowadays, yes. and I know that uh, CLG also states uh, themselves as one of the most environmentally friendly companies in the world who offers a lot of technologies for biofuels as well. Mm -hmm. So how do you think, how uh, difficult in terms of effort and cost it can be for oil and gas companies to switch to biofuels? The switch to biofuels is ongoing in certain ways. First of all, we have to put it in perspective that uh, biofuels are first of all, very important for reducing the carbon footprint of transportation fuels supplied to, to our customers. But they, we don't expect them to be um, like a high percentage over 50, 70%. Uh, that's because the, the ability of biofuels is limited. Take for example, to, to produce a thousand barrels of biofuels uh, such as from Caranita oil, it may take 5,000 acres of land to do so. Now there are some biofuels projects that um, are, are using algae, but they're going to be limited. Put that in perspective that a typical refinery days, these days processes something like 200,000 barrels a day and may be producing 150,000 plus barrels per day of transportation fuels. But they will be, in, even though they're, they're going to be a small part, they are important maybe five, 10% of the total mix of transportation fuels produced. So we're, we're part of that. And uh, we see it as important in reducing the carbon footprint. And we're doing our part with the technologies in biofuels uh, that we think are, will be attractive to customers. So am I right that you don't think that full transition to biofuels is possible in the future? I don't think anyone does or expects that, um, but as, it will, they will have a strong contribution to transportation fuels and even greater than in the past. Okay, and is there a strong competition between your company and others on this sphere? In, in biofuels, certainly there, there's many, many uh, approaches to biofuels we're seeing. What we see though is a lot of them use a batch type process which has limitations. There's pluses or minuses with every approach you take, mm -hmm. right? Like anything. The approach we, we have is a continuous process. Uh, what we've done is we've partnered with a company called ARA, which has a unique process for converting um, feedstocks like brown oils or greases and, and other uh, feed uh, bioproducts to uh, an intermediate product. Where we come in is with our uh, hydroprocessing expertise and combined, we've offered a technology called isoconversion, and it can produce high-quality distillates, jet fuels, in a continuous process that can be scaled up depending on the uh, feedstock availability. What are your thoughts about the future of oil and gas industry? What can we expect? If you look at what's happening in the world, there's a continued growth in demand for petrochemicals and, to a certain extent, transportation fuels. And this is not going to stop. So what we have to do as a processing industry is make these petrochemicals more efficient. 
And, and that's what we're working on. For example, the, the JDA with Saudi Aramco is finding ways to make petrochemicals in a more cost-effective manner that will lower the, make, lower the cost and increase the production of petrochemicals from crude oil as the demand for transportation fuels flattens off or maybe drops off a bit. Okay, our blitz part, which is um, the part with the short questions. So uh -huh. please feel free to tell me whatever you come to your mind first. Okay. So um, where would you like to live at your old age? Well, I'm pretty happy where I live right now in the country outside a big city and uh, probably stay there. Okay, great. So if you did not work in the petrochemical industry, would you enter it today? Absolutely. I, I think it's changing just as fast today and as interesting as it's ever been. Okay. I, I, I wouldn't have changed my career. Well, lucky you are. <laughs> yeah. uh, name the most pleasant occasion in your life. Ah, I'd say my two children, when they got their advanced degrees from universities. Um, my son is, uh, is now an astrophysicist uh, working in uh, Scotland at, uh, and doing advanced research and things I don't quite understand. And my, <laughs> and my daughter has her advanced degree uh, in behavior analysis dealing with uh, uh, autistic children. Very proud of them. Name the last book you've read. Ah, well, it's kind of a funny book. It was written many years ago. It's called 1423. It's uh, this person's perception or history of the Chinese uh, trading fleets, which I think it probably a lot of pseudo-history, but they claim they circumvented the globe and came to North America before Columbus and all this stuff. But certainly, it's it just amazing to read how powerful and large the, the Chinese uh, naval fleet was at that time, and then it compressed to nothing. It's just a fun, interesting, part-true history. And if you can choose any place to live except Canada, where would you go? Oh, you took that away. Well. <laughs> Well, I, I, as you know, I live in, in, in the south of the United States, um, probably Thailand because my wife is from oh. there and we have a house in the middle of Thailand. It's a beautiful location, but a bit hot for all year round. Uh, <laughs> well, my Houston's hot too, but uh, so yeah, it, it's just a beautiful country. Okay. Well, who is your old model? My first one was a, a famous hydro processing expert from another company who I met as a young engineer. And I always remember what he told me when I came into the licensing businesses. Now, Dan, you're no longer an engineer for this company. You're an engineer for the world. And that's <laughs> always stuck with me. That's, that's good advice for anybody going to work for somebody. You're, you're, you're there for the world in the type of business we're in. How to build a business that will live 100 years? Um, you have to find something that's important to society and find solutions that are better than others have for those those needs and hopefully, I don't know, go a hundred years, but it'll go many years if you, if you take that approach. So do you want to create such a company yourself? No, I'm too old. <laughs> Why so? <laughs> no, I don't know about that. Uh, I, I, I'm happy to be part of a company that's doing that. 